0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Bump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Karen Richards. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because Karen and I had a talk last September, and when we were finished, we had stopped the recording, and we kept talking about things. And we thought, wait a minute, we should be recording this stuff. This is good stuff. So we said, well, let's do another one. And um, so we decided to. And since then, Karen has been to India and had all sorts of adventures, which we'll talk about. So um, it's great to have you back, Karen.
1: Thank you. Thank you for welcoming me
0: back. Oh, you're welcome. Um, No relation to Keith Richards, are you?
1: Who's that? Is he from
0: the Stones? Yeah, Rolling Stones.
1: (laughs) I wish. (laughs) I
0: thought maybe he was your uncle and you could retire pretty soon. (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, I'm no relation to Jeremy Archer, so there you are. So, uh, how was India?
1: It was very interesting actually this year um, because I had a a kind of health relapse in the winter here in England and um, after doing pretty well for maybe two, maybe three months, getting on for three months over the summer and really thinking things were beginning to improve because it's been quite a long journey in terms of the physical challenges, Um, the winter came and um, there seemed to be a correlation with, Lack of sunlight and mm. lack of energy, and so part of the reason that I returned was actually a apart from the fact that that's what was happening. a friend um supported me in my trip this year um was for health and um when I got there after after the first week, I was pretty challenged in every physical way actually i um <laughs> I got sick and um It was the first of about five episodes of food poisoning, so if I hadn't got (laughs) one lot of food poisoning and was experiencing that and recovering, then the next one would come. Mm. And um, it was such an interesting experience to observe this happening because there seemed to be a, a motivation to go to get well, and actually the opposite happened. Yeah. Um
0: <laughs> Most people don't go to India to get well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's it's a pretty nurturing place for me being at Tiruvannamalai and right. um you know, although that, that that was the case, there was this, you know, apparent physical thing that was going on and it wasn't just to do with the food poisoning. I actually stepped on a bee during mm. the time I was there as well. That was quite interesting and um, I also injured my foot on a mosquito coil as well as getting injured by the mosquitoes themselves mm. <laughs> constantly. They seemed to love me. Mm. Um, and I also had a slight accident um, and I injured my hands so, so badly I thought I'd need a skin graft actually. Oh. And um, yeah, so that was that was interesting. Not being able to use my right hand for a couple of weeks because hmm. uh, it was all bandaged up, and um, I also was physically assaulted outside an ashram. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, there's a there's a saying so, with regard to uh, karma. When the postman yeah. knows you're going to move, he tries to deliver all your mail.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was. Really interesting to just relax into all of that, and um, seriously, it was, um, and to not really care what was happening to the to the physical body. Um, Mm. There was just a a deeper and deeper relaxation. And I had this amazing experience while I was being ill for about the fourth or fifth time with food poisoning because that time was pretty spectacular. (laughs) I was very, very, very physically ill. Mm. And um, I had, everybody was coming to the house. I had the Indian family that were living below me saying, don't lock your door, and coming in checking, bringing me food. And uh, all these text messages from friends of mine. And I'd been ill in bed for two years, and there'd been virtually nobody. <laughs> and so I get a little stomach upset, and then suddenly the whole world is, is checking on, on Karen. So it was, it was actually an amazing reflection to just drop into all of that and just enjoy, actually,
0: being sick. Mm. It's, it's nothing it's interesting, isn't it? It. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it, it's sometimes you know the most trying circumstances make the kind of the contrast more obvious. You know what I mean? Um, I mean if you if life is all sort of mellow and humdrum and ordinary, uh, s- sometimes you don't realize how how deeply grounded you are in presence or being or the self or whatever. But then you know all hell breaks loose and and you realize it's still not touching you and uh, it's, yeah it 's interesting
1: Life has never been pretty stable and kind of ordinary i mean yes it 's been ordinary, but there 's been a lot of challenges along the way over the over the years and um, this was one of the first times that I've really experienced some kind of extreme things to do with the body, and still been at felt really deeply okay. I mean, there was that in terms of the physical illness for two or three years when I was really not able to do very much, and um, it's it's amazing how that has deepened. That's because great. I could see there was this um, idea to get well actually mm-hmm. and now there's a sense of who cares hmm. who cares <laughs> who knows when it's going to end it may never end I don't know
0: but I'll bet you that alongside that who cares attitude was a was also the desire to get well I mean you know on some level we don't want to feel like, that way it, it's nicer to feel healthy on some level you've got to admit that right
1: Well, that's what seems to have shifted. There's been the recognition that actually there was this drive, there was this desire to get well. Even though there wasn't kind of outward physical movement, there was this sense of wanting that to happen, and Mm -hmm. that's been let go of. Oh, I see. So you're just
0: sort of surrendering to the process. Uh, In other words, whatever... More
1: deeply than I thought I was, because I thought that was already happening, actually.
0: But in the throes of it, you know, when you're at your sickest... Uh, or being attacked or stung or bitten or whatever, <laughs> all those other things. <laughs> I mean, was it like, ho hum, you know, this is cool? Or was there sort of like a, a, an innate biological tendency to want to, you know, improve the situation despite the simultaneous acceptance of it?
1: There was a recognition that before that was the case, and so. There was just a surrendering and letting go, and it wasn't a kind of inert okay well there's nothing I can do about it it was like okay well this is what's happening and it's fine
0: yeah but um kind of what I'm getting at is like you know if you put your stove on your hand on a stove it wouldn't you wouldn't sort of have the attitude of this is just as good as having my hand off the hot stove you know you would withdraw your hand there's a natural tendency to kind of you know we're human beings whatever else we may be <laughs> and and uh, so, it's there not was like... a there was a
1: recognition that ultimately there isn't control in
0: yeah. the way
1: that we think we have control, and so there was a deeping letting go into that which has ultimate control, which is the life that I am. The life that I am has ultimate control of what happens to the physicality. Mm-hmm. There is no ultimate control here as to whether there will be a for the life of this form a lifetime of sickness or whether there will be an improvement there's no sense of knowing what what is going to happen as regards to that and now there's this sense of well whatever happens is absolutely fine
0: mm-hmm.
1: there was a sense of it being fine anyway but there's a deeper sense of it being fine
0: yeah there's the a desire
1: verse... to sorry the desire to actually get better Mm-hmm. Ha- it's it's gone. That doesn't mean to say there's going to be an eating of junk food. There's going to be eating of all sorts of things that aren't particularly good because it doesn't matter. There's still a taking care. You know, in a way, the body's like a car. Mm-hmm. You know, depends what you put into it. But ultimately, the control of what happens to the physicality isn't dependent upon those things. There's an underlying intelligence that is governing. What, what takes place.
0: Yeah, very much. Um, there's a verse in the Gita, you have, you have control over action alone, never over its fruits. So, you know, you have a choice of whether you're going to take a medicine for your food poisoning, whether you're going to stay in bed, whether you're going to eat more poisoned food, you know, you have choices <laughs> over that, but you don't necessarily have a choice over the outcome of those things.
1: Right, all three things seem to be going on. (laughs) Eating, eating more poison food, and not necessarily knowing that that was happening. So, no matter how careful I was.
0: Yeah, no. I mean, I've been to India twice, and I was sick half the time. Uh, I have a friend who went there with me, and he said he went there expecting the bottom to fall out of his world, and instead, the world fell out of his bottom. <laughs>
1: Are we somehow supposed to carry on this interview after you <laughs>
0: drop a line like that? Yeah, we'll manage. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so um on a brighter note, um so what what was the sort of the what were the more <laughs> well, I don't know if you want to discriminate, but you know what were some of the more uh, bright spots in your visit to India? <laughs> just,
1: just the openness, the receptivity, and the love of of the people that were gathered there this season. Um, it was very, very deeply touching. And I hadn't gone to actually hold any meetings necessarily. I'd just gone to experience being there. And um, so many people were asking if I was actually going to hold meetings in the end I gave in and I I did probably about a dozen Mm -hmm. meetings and it was just incredible the receptivity and the love and the openness that uh, people were exhibiting and a real genuine um, inquiry and wanting to to really look and actively investigate which was deeply, deeply moving in, in so many ways
0: you're good at it, I mean I, in preparation for this interview, I listened to those sat songs you did down in Asheville, North Carolina, and I really enjoyed listening to them. I thought, wow, you know she really speaks very genuinely from a deep place, and um you know you you said you hadn't read a lot of books or anything uh, since not you're at waiting. all no, but you're actually you, you speak as someone who had you know there's a a lot of uh, wisdom and eloquence that must just be coming from your own intuitive understanding and experiential und- uh, experiential grounding in this.
1: Well, that must be what is happening in a way because there's, there was an in- inability to read great reams of text and still that is a problem sometimes. You know, I can only manage a page or a page or two. And um, you sent me an article to read and it was very <laughs> challenging actually. I opened <laughs> it and I looked at it and I kind of skimmed it. It's like there is this sense of not being able to do certain things, and um, because I don't the, know where the, that the health, comes from. Because of the health
0: challenges you've had, is that it?
1: I don't know whether it's that or whether there's just this sense of this feels like wordy mind kind of stuff that doesn't actually resonate anymore. And mm-hmm. so there's an inability to kind of digest that kind of thing. How about the real
0: pithy stuff? I mean, if you read Ramana or you read Nisargadatta or something, does that resonate, or even there it's a little hard to buckle down and read it?
1: I've hardly read anything by Ramana, which sounds incredible, because if I have a teacher, he is it. You Mm -hmm. know, I have never had a physical teacher, but there was just um, a sense of heart transmission, if if that makes any sense at all, and um, a deep resonance and a deep, Reverence not to him, but to what he symbolizes, which really is the life that I am. He symbolizes everything I know to be true, and so you know even with with his teachings, even with the sense of of connection, um, there there is an inability to sit and read from cover to cover um, some kind of you know understanding of that because What's important is the life that I am and and responding to that as my teacher um, and using that as a way to constantly reflect, well, what's being perceived here, what's being believed here, is there anything that's being distorted, but not in a kind of way that is um, obsessive, but just very naturally and curiously in each and every moment, there's been that commitment and that commitment has been unwavering, you know, there is nothing else, there is nothing else that matters here, this mm-hmm. is what is important.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you find that life never um, ceases to give you opportunities for that? It hasn't so far. <laughs> I mean, for instance, when you when you get into a more humdrum routine uh, at home, just taking care of your cats and just getting along and, and so on, does it... Um, you know, does it get a little bit mundane, or do you find that even in the most unmundane circumstances, there's sort of rich opportunities for doing what you just said?
1: I think there's always rich opportunities, but it's interesting coming back from India this time. There's been a noticeable contrast <clears throat> in um, in the experience here, and first thing I noticed when I got back is it's so quiet.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is, it is noisy.
1: <laughs> and, um, you know, you can hear the birds in the garden from the house. You know, that's how quiet it is. And um, for such a long time, the house that I'm in provided like a safe haven from the world. You know, it was like a cave, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, the life that had been experienced before had become this living hell and then although there was illness physical illness that was better than going back to the hell actually and so you it was you mean the
0: nursing job
1: the nursing job the relationships the the physical challenges of mm-hmm. you know the health and having to try and function in a world where the physical body wasn't supporting that and mm-hmm. trying to fit in and all of those things you know it was it was an escape from all of not There was a a way of trying, okay, I'm going to escape. There was no choice in the escape because there was physical incapacity. But it was like a nurturing environment where there was the escape from the hell and the integration and the real deepening of what had been recognized. But it's almost, it's funny, I've been reflecting on this since I got back. It's almost as if this is no longer... um,
0: Fitting, necessary.
1: fitting somehow. Yeah. I don't know because physically there isn't an abundance of health. It's not mm-hmm. like woohoo! I'm ready to kind of <laughs> take on everything, <laughs> right. and there doesn't feel that there's a drive there in any way to to do um, mm-hmm. necessarily. But yeah, it would be interesting to see what what unfolds in respect of that. It's
0: Just sitting with to it. See what unfolds.
1: Indeed, absolutely. <laughs>
0: Well, it's funny because during your talks in North Carolina, you were saying at one point uh, that you know it wasn't necessary to be in an ashram or a monastery or something like that. It was just an escape, and I was thinking, well, no, it 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 can be an escape, but it can also be totally appropriate for a t- certain type of person at a certain phase of their life. It's it's kind of good to you know if necessary, if appropriate, it's good to lay low and uh, you know be sheltered from all the the craziness. Uh, and it may not always be what that person is going to do, but it has its place uh, for them, you know, for a time. Mm-hmm. And maybe some t- so for some people for their entire life, for others for a couple of years or whatever. Uh, everything has its purpose.
1: Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, the purpose as I see it is whatever is happening now.
0: Yeah, but if you had been forced somehow to continue in your nursing job with all the pressures and the stuff that was going on, instead of having the opportunity f- to just sort of chill, and uh, you know, be in a more settled situation, it would have continued to be hell. And uh, you know, so it's like you were, you joined a monastery or you know a nunnery for for a couple yeah. of years there, you know.
1: And we can't know whether it will conti- it would have continued to be hell. Maybe if there no. was a physical capacity to have undertaken, carried on undertaking that role, then it may have been experienced in a different way because mm-hmm. of what had been realised. We'll never know that because that wasn't what unfolded. Yeah, um, you simply
0: had no choice in the matter. No, no, yeah.
1: not at all.
0: Yeah. So uh, in our, you know, in our. Um, after the last interview, and we, we put together some thoughts about what we talk about in this one. And one of the things you said uh, was what you feel caused your illness and how there has been improvements, etc. Shall we cover that? What, what do you feel caused your illness?
1: Well, it's so difficult to pinpoint, you know, a cause. And, and relating any cause is down to the Causality, in a way, an individual who has an idea that they're a separate self, and then relating that to decisions they supposedly made. So, if we're looking at it from that perspective, it was all the believed in thoughts, the actions, and the consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, and this stems from this perception of self. And so, really, it's, it was a constant state of being in resistance to life as it is, Mm. to the point that that resistance had to collapse Mm. because there was no capacity for it to be sustained. Um, There was so uh, much energy and drive here that it was almost like I had enough energy for three people, you know, working full time, Mm. being overworked in the job. running a house, and having a social life. I was never still. There was never any stillness. It was like um, two modes, on or off. I was either asleep or I was doing something. There was no real sense of stillness or relaxation in any capacity. And so, physically, it was almost like inevitable that there would be a burnout.
0: Sure, and that happens to a lot of people. I mean in this day and age people working two jobs, single moms, you know, all kinds of situations people get burned out. But are you saying that, um, in your case at least, you see it as uh, a resistance to what is that was the the more fundamental issue there? I mean, in the the midst of all that stuff, you're being a nurse, you're having a social life. In what way, during all that, were you resisting what is?
1: I was never happy.
0: And that... I was
1: never happy with the way things were. There was well, always a of lo- a, a lot of being... people
0: aren't happy with the way things are. <laughs> is that is that is that because they're resisting what is?
1: Um, if we're looking at it in that way, I would say yes. Uh-huh. And that there's this deep dissatisfaction for something to complete us. And that's what's driving our action.
0: And so I guess a two part question here. Um What did you do about it, and what can anybody do about it? I mean, you know, because sometimes (laughs) certain circumstances are quite binding. You know, what a person's going to say, what am I supposed to do? You know, give up my job and let my kids starve? Um, Or should I just somehow change my mental attitude and like this shitty job that I hate?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's really interesting because there was no active spiritual search here. So there was no conscious awareness that that was going on. Mm hmm It was completely unconscious, it was completely automatic, to the point where it couldn't be sustained, and it was like hitting a wall, hitting a brick wall, to the point it couldn't be ignored anymore, and then there was this, oh, okay, well, perhaps my idea of who I am isn't what I thought, because that was revealed to be something else, and then life was experienced in a, in a different way. Experience didn't change, but the way that experience was being experienced somehow um, was shifted somehow, we could say. We could say it, it um, was revealed to be not what I thought.
0: But it wasn't through any great effort on your part, it was more like you just listened to that John Wheeler tape and and somehow your your perspective shifted quite spontaneously.
1: There was a lot of unconscious effort to get somewhere that I didn't recognize. Hmm. So, you know, it's not strictly true to say there was no effort Mm -hmm. because there was a drive but I didn't recognize what that drive was about. You know, everybody's seeking ultimately, whether yeah. they recognize that they are or not. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we just turn the whole um, thing into what's called a spiritual search, but it's still the same seeking. Yeah. Whether whether someone recognize it, recognizes it as looking for something deeper, deeper, um, looking for the ultimate truth of who they are or or however you want to phrase that, or whether they're completely unaware of that and they think it's found in the next holiday or the next partner or the next job or the next, you know, big thing that's going to really complete them.
0: Mm -hmm. No, I I agree with that. I think that, you know, you could think of it... Well, you could use the analogy of electricity, you know, which can, it's just this basic same thing, but it, it can power so many different types of devices. And like that, there's a fundamental drive which can manifest in so many different ways, whether <coughs> the things you just said, like the next car, the next relationship, or which can manifest as a sort of a quest for, for spiritual realization. Um, and some things seem to be more... Uh, fruitful than others in terms of actually satisfying that, that fundamental urge, but perhaps one has, doesn't have a choice and we just kind of graduate from one desire to the next and until we kind of, you know, one horizon to the next until we... Uh,
1: until all desires are exhausted.
0: Yeah, and they're not exhausted necessarily by fulfilling them individually, they're, it's it's more like they're exhausted by finding that which is the fulfillment of everything, you know, it's like the rivers all eventually find the ocean, and then they become the ocean.
1: Right, while never not knowing the ocean at all, that's the irony of it.
0: Mm, Yeah, Uh not knowing it as a river anyway, (laughs) you know. (laughs) So here I am, I'm still a little river, and now now I know this ocean, you know, the river can't really um, incorporate the ocean, it has to be the other way around. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, it's funny because uh, there are a lot of people, well-known people, well-known examples of people who had various mental and physical crises that seemed to precipitate an awakening. In, in our last interview, I, I mentioned St. Francis, who got very sick uh, after he came back from the Crusades and almost died. And then he woke up from that with a, a whole different perspective. And, um, you know, Eckhart Tolle's story is famous. He was virtually on the brink of suicide. And, you know, then he said, and he had that little question to himself, well, you know, I can't live with myself anymore. And he thought, well, wait a minute. Who, are there two of me? Who is this self with whom I can't yes. live with? Went to bed and woke up in the morning and everything was different. Byron Katie was in a halfway house and a cockroach crawled, crawled across her foot and she had this realization. So there's a lot of stories like that. I mean even in my own case I pretty much hit rock bottom before things kind of turned around. So maybe that's just a principle that's worth noting in passing here that your, your illness may indeed have been a blessing. Uh, Oh, it
1: was a total blessing. It was the best thing that ever happened. Seriously.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, uh, Totally. It was the biggest gift I have ever received. Mm -hmm. And um, I am so, so grateful for it because it um, it unmasked the ignorance. You know, it was just... um, If somebody had said, this is the best thing, you're going to get really sick, you're not going to be able to leave your house practically for two years, you're not going to be able to really take care of yourself, and yet it's going to be that you're going to lose your job, everything's going to fall apart, and yet it's going to be the best thing ever, I'd have probably wanted to shoot somebody. but (laughs) But it's really true, and it's often only in hindsight that we see what a gift things are. And so now there is total trust in whatever is happening, no matter how bad it appears to be, that it's always just as it's supposed to be
0: same thing happened to Adyashanti he wanted to be a professional bicycle racer and he was training and training and then he got super sick and he was like in bed for six months and then he, uh, when he finally got started and he had already had a spiritual awakening but when he started getting better he started using whatever energy he had to start riding his bicycle again and getting more and more in shape and next thing you knew he was in this competitive mindset and then wham nature knocked him back flat on his back for another six months and finally he kind of got the point <laughs> <But> <laughs> not supposed to do that <laughs>
1: yeah here it was just like one big whammy but then you know there had to be a committing to that yeah and a surrendering with ever more um fullness to that you know it's no good to just have an awakening and then continue on as if you could anyway but Mm. if if the realization is is deep enough um as if you could go back to that but There has to be a commitment to seeing it fresh and living it fresh. Mm -hmm. And in a way, there's a deconstruction. There appears to be this deconstruction process where there's a a revealing of the truth, and then there is a melting into that truth more and more fully in each Mm -hmm. and every moment where the unlearning of concepts, um, which does seem to be endless, Mm -hmm. um, just keeps you know, deepening itself.
0: Well, let's talk about that for a while. So there was, in fact, reiterate what you, what you just said. There was a revealing of truth and then a deepening into truth and an unraveling of concepts. Let's explore all that.
1: Yeah, there's, there seemed to be um, a recognition which was unshakable, which was unquestionable. Mm-hmm. And so there was just this realization, well, what are you going to be committed to? Are you going to be committed to Thoughts, emotions, who you think you are, that was revealed to be false? Or are you actually going to commit to seeing through these concepts more and more in each and every moment? So it's almost like the personality structure that is revealed to be false in the moment of awakening doesn't completely deconstruct in that moment of awakening. There are still um, habitual patterns of behavior and ways of reacting to life that have been learned that don't necessarily fall away in that, in that moment of awakening. And so that's really the commitment, as I see it, the, the awake, to the awakened life to seeing through ever more clearly the veils of deception. Hmm.
0: Well, it seems to me that not all conditioning is ever going to fall away. So, you know, if you know how to ride a bicycle, you're still going to know how to ride a bicycle. If you're right-handed, you're going to remain right-handed all of your life. But let's distinguish between the kinds of conditioning that we would want to have fall away and the kinds that we need uh, that, that are perfectly innocuous and perhaps beneficial to our functioning.
1: Yeah, I mean, certain aspects of conditioning, like language, for example, is yeah. learned, and we could, we could say that that is obviously conditioned, but the certain self-defeating patterns um, that arise from, from certain tendencies that cause suffering, basically, that invite difficulties, conflict in terms of the way we react to life as it's arising. Because on some level, the personality that has been seen through as false is, uh, is feeling under threat. It's an automatic response. Like when the kettle is boiling and you put your hand in the steam, there's an automatic translation of what the interpretation of the experience means. And so it's seeing through these untruths with ever more um, clarity, with a deepening understanding that actually this isn't true. And in order to to um, to experience that, it needs to be recognized, because otherwise it's like a record that's playing again and again. It's what I call... Um, It's like when an airplane can't land and it's in a holding path. It's like being in a holding path of certain experiences, which are fed through unconscious beliefs and behaviors.
0: Can you think of a specific example, even in terms of your own life, of of something like that?
1: Well, certain experiences that recreate cycles of suffering. So... Um, ooh, okay, let's see. I mean, here in terms of the personal story, there was a lot of abuse as a child. There was a lot of abandonment.
0: My parents.
1: Um, uh, yeah. And yeah. Um, so it's it's a difficult thing to talk about, um, you know, when certain members of family may be watching the video or, you know, there's certain things you don't want to cause unnecessary upset to people. Mm -hmm. But um, my father left when I was four years old and there was an abandonment there. There was abuse by a stepfather and there was no protection from that abuse. So in a way, there was abandonment there too. Um, You know, people that were supposedly trying you know supposed to be providing an area of safety for a child to grow up that wasn't happening and so certain beliefs get formulated about the world in relation to that um there's all sorts of other things that i could go into as well but um you know it's it's like well that leaves an imprint And by the time probably a child is six or seven, that imprint is pretty much there. So unless we actually become conscious to this and we can see through this, it's almost like closing the stable door after the horse has bolted. You know, there's nothing really that can be done about it. It plays out then, however it plays out. So... It, it has an effect on the types of perhaps work situations we encounter. You know, I, there was bullying at school, there was bullying through work situations um, because there's, it's familiar. We don't recognize, but we're attracting those kind of situations in relation to, the, to causality because ultimately there's no control over any of this. But there's an attracting of these situations through unconscious thoughts, behaviors, attitudes that seem to create it as a living, breathing experience. But it's all to do with the imprint, the effect, the imprint of these tendencies has on the experience. And so... I actually am quite passionate about um, using psychotherapy after awakening for this reason because unless we recognize the tendencies we cannot recognize when the program is running because it's like breathing we're blind to it it's so familiar that it's unnoticed Um, and so this is really where In a way, the realization gets lived and no longer becomes just a nice idea about what this means.
0: So in your own case, did you participate in psychotherapy after your awakening to deal with some of these issues?
1: No. (laughs) (laughs) I investigated myself shall we say, and through communications with friends that have this training. So I didn't have formal psychotherapy. There was mirroring going on, we could say. Mm -hmm. Um, And still, this continues because I feel it's very, very essential to the ongoing process of integration, and there's always something more to see. There's always something that can be recognized and can be seen through. So, there was not kind of a digging around, but a willingness to self-reflect on the personality that had been seen through as false. So really getting familiar, actually, with the constructs of Karen. What is it that, you know, makes up this idea called Karen? How is it she functions? How is it she sees the world? And through recognizing those traits there was a deeper and deeper letting go of that. Because it was almost like in order for them to dissolve, they needed to be recognized in the first place. Because dysfunctional traits don't necessarily operate in a bad way. They can operate in what can be deemed a good way, too. You know, they can be seen as um, very successful, very kind of um, charismatic traits sometimes. So, but they're feeding a deep, unconscious need for love or recognition or approval or whatever it is, and so there's a balance to this. It isn't necessarily um, something that is essentially good uh, bad. You know yeah, can, that's
0: what my wife says about this interview show that I, I do it for the attention. <laughs> <laughs> I must have not gotten enough attention when I was a kid or something.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Is that what she says to you? (laughs) Yeah, sometimes. (laughs) Um, Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I I I think, you know, ultimately what it's about, we can only lie to ourself. So this isn't about anybody else's opinion necessarily. This is about our own self, ruthless self-honesty about any attempts to manipulate experiencing in some way.
0: So in s- terms of the specific problem you outlined, the abuse and the bullying and so on, um, can you maybe go more deeply into how you have actually gone about processing that, um, perhaps it was totally spontaneous, but how has the, how has the working through of that particular um, impression proceeded at, since, since your awakening?
1: Well I recognize that actually that kind of, the imprint I mean, it could be many reasons, but, um, you know, there was, a, there was this sense of being a people-pleaser, mm-hmm. and that was very evident in my choice of career. I gave my life in service as a nurse, mm-hmm. you know, and it was something that really I was very passionate about. So I was actually nurt- went around nurturing everybody else and taking care of everybody else because it was a symptom of my own lack of nurturing, my own lack of receiving.
0: Hmm. Well, that almost seems like an example of what you just said, that a, a, a sort of an, a minus can be turned into a plus. Um, I mean, it's good that, to serve others and to help others and so on.
1: It was totally dysfunctional, actually, Rick, really? to the point to the point that it, it burnt me out. So that isn't a wow. healthy service. You know, it can be seen as good in the eyes of the world, but actually it was coming from a deeply unconscious, deeply dysfunctional place.
0: I see what you mean. It was almost like you were, um, you know, tossing out money on the street to help people, but without much in your bank account.
1: Exactly, absolutely, to the point that there was nothing left. Yeah. And um, it was completely self-defeating. And so it can be seen as good in the eyes of, of others, shall we say, of the world. But really it wasn't good at all. It was deeply unconscious, and yet it can... Because it can be seen to be good, you know, that's another distortion
0: hmm.
1: in actual fact. And so it's really about getting to the truth of that and seeing through um, any attempts to manipulate is really an att- is a movement away, is an attempt to get something which is being overlooked, which hmm. is what you truly are, which is already complete in its fullness anyway.
0: So how about now um what sort of processing of of uh, conditioned tendencies do you find yourself going through and maybe it's not even relevant to bring up specific ones you know oh, I'm I'm processing this and I'm processing that but uh, maybe even a well if you wish you can but uh, or maybe a more broad sort of sketch of how this process um goes on a day-to-day basis
1: Well, just really looking at the example that I I just gave you regarding, you know, serving others, there was really, um, how to explain this, life was never my own and I don't really want to relate it to the the sense of individuality, I don't mean it in that way. But prior to the recognition, my life was never my own. It was always about what other people wanted, always trying to fit in with what other people either wanted me to be or what I thought would gain some kind of approval or sense of appreciation from someone. And that was just totally dysfunctional. And so that was seen through. And then there is this knowing by being rooted ever more fully, ever more deeply in each and every moment in the truth, that right action doesn't spring from there. It's it's Mm moment-specific, and if that means upsetting an apparent someone... It isn't coming from wanting to upset them. It's actually coming from, well, this is what feels true in this moment. And if someone doesn't like it, well, then that's very unfortunate. But before, that would be something that would never have even entertained. You know, there would have been soul-searching, a sense of not feeling happy about the fact that I supposedly upset someone else. And, of course, we're not in control of any of that. Mm. So there is a really... Stepping into the life that is always here, and really moving as that life.
0: Well, it's interesting because your life has sort of transformed into one still of serving others, but it's in a different capacity. I mean, you're you're doing this spiritual stuff, you know, giving satsangs and teaching and so on. And that's I'm actually
1: serving myself. I'm actually true. serving the one. I don't see it as serving others. I see, mm-hmm. you know, there's total when there's total alignment with the life that you are, there's a meeting of that life in whatever way it seems to be appearing. And so it's not a question of Karen wants to help others. Of mm-hmm. course there's, you know... Um, I don't really know how to explain it. There's not a sense of not wanting to help. I don't mean it in that capacity. But there's just a sense of responding appropriately to whatever is arising. And sometimes that can appear to be um, unhelpful according to the other person's perspective. You know, it, it might not appear... Um, that there's always this sense of doership for others. There can be a sense of, well, actually, no, this isn't. Um, there can be a closing of a door, perhaps, if you feel it's in the best interest in the moment for that to happen. Yeah. If that makes ever, sense to no, you. No, it
0: totally makes sense. It's, it's. I mean, if if I could summarize what you're saying in a phrase, it's it's basically spontaneous right action. Um, just spontaneously arising, f- well now it's more than a phrase, but you know, just uh, <laughs> spontaneously arising from being really, from a deep intuitive uh, f- level of functioning. Uh, beyond without, the
1: mind. Beyond yeah, beyond the, the mind. mind. I
0: was just going to say without a lot of intermediation by the mind or the intellect or you know rationality and so on. It's just sort of an, you know, trusting your impulses and having, fo- having found that your impulses are trustworthy.
1: Right. Exactly that. And so, there's no um, need to gain approval anymore Right. from anyone.
0: And would you agree that this… is there's no one here. <laughs> …you can't necessarily prescribe this. I mean, you can't make a blanket prescription to everyone and say, just do whatever you, know, you feel like because it's going to just be the right thing, because not everyone is necessarily functioning from that level of uh, realization.
1: Yeah, and really the way I see it is there's only me here, there's only myself here, there's only the divine here. Mm -hmm. And so in each and every moment, when we are fully um, integrated with that, and really there's no integration when that's recognized, because it's just full in its completeness already, then there's just life serving itself Mm -hmm. in every moment, in every way. Um, and that doesn't always look pretty you know there's this idea that we have to be so nice and so spiritual and so we never say another crossword we never fall out with anyone you know we never say a harsh word to anyone but that might be entirely appropriate in that moment Mm -hmm. and if it's coming from a place of deep knowing wisdom love that doesn't mean that we have the right to you know be awful to people i don't mean it like that but it could be taken that way because it's so open to misunderstanding
0: sometimes people have used that as a license for behaving that way you know yes they behave really you know poorly and then they justify it by saying oh it's not really me doing it it's just the one you know happens to behave this way and you know i think you have to discriminate a bit and find you know where that's a lot of bs and where it's you know Genuine. Well, we
1: only can lie to ourselves. So ultimately, if that is happening, there has to be a trade-off at some point. It can't be sustained indefinitely.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, And that's between you and the life that you
0: are, which isn't mm. two things. Do you ever have a sense of um, inner conflict or let me let me phrase the question uh, do you ever sort of have a, an impulse to do a certain thing and then a little voice in your head says ah, but i am afraid to do that or i better not do that or this might happen or, or is it really a smooth uh, uncomplicated um unmediated flow for you now
1: um it's pretty um pretty good flow going on here but it mm-hmm. wasn't always that way not in the beginning mm-hmm. you know there was a lot of kind of tussling, I guess, between the old way and you know the condition way, because often what seems natural to choose is actually what is familiar, no matter how bad that is, rather hmm. than plunging into not knowing. Hmm. That's the trade-off. We go for something we know, even if it's awful, or we actually just rest completely in not knowing and allow the life that we are to direct us in whatever way. And there, there comes a moment, and I don't even know, I don't want to even phrase it like that because it can be so misunderstood, but where there is, it's seen that there isn't really any choice anyway in that. Mm. It's just uh-huh. a natural movement that seems to take over.
0: Um. My next question, which just occurred to me spontaneously, is, <laughs> uh, and which I'll actually edit out if you wish, but uh, let me just ask it, and and that is like you know since your awakening, I I know you, I know of one you know intimate or romantic relationship that you got involved with. I don't know if there have been others. You can say yes or no. Um, but how has how has this realization kind of uh, panned out in terms of that sort of thing? Um, you know, because there, that's those sorts of things are often the most challenging, and you know we have feelings well, Relationship, and, mm-hmm.
1: relationship is where we get to see all our stuff actually, mm-hmm. and so it can be tremendously beneficial on every level. And um, here, there was this idea, in a way, of what it would be like to be in awakened relationship and what that meant. And um, my experience of that wasn't that at all, actually. And... Um you know, I can't speak for the for the other, but I saw things on both sides of the equation that were going on, and there wasn't necessarily an openness or a receptivity to explore those things. Um, you know, on, my, on
0: both sides there wasn't, or just on on the other side. Well,
1: my <laughs> I perceived it to be on the other side, and um, you know, I was witnessing all sorts of stuff, and there was a real wanting to explore that actually and to really look um, at what was going on but it's very difficult to do that in a dynamic where um, how can I phrase this it appeared that the the other knew everything so it's very the, the, diff- the other
0: felt that he knew everything or, or it appeared to whom that the other knew everything um, just what I just said
1: when somebody seems to be teaching all the time in mm-hmm. in every situation, when there's nobody really to teach, um, you know this this can be extremely difficult. And I'm not necessarily sure this is appropriate for, for broadcasting. So <laughs> we'll have to see. Well, we're but, dancing uh, around it. I don't want to. You
0: know. <laughs> and, and
1: I don't want uh, to cause any any issues. And I neither wanna,
0: do I. And I, I'm very fond of the <laughs> fellow we're referring to, but. Um, you know, it's it's a legitimate concern, I think, and I think people will find it interesting, and and I and I'm kind of trying to discuss this with total respect and appreciation for both parties. But it's um, it's a fascinating topic, actually, relationships among awakened people, and and uh, how ideal or or. Problematic, well, first of all, there's no
1: there's no awaken there's no awakened person as I see it there's only life expressing itself however it's expressing itself mm-hmm. and an opportunity to see all the ways that we're deceiving ourselves and you know in my last relationship there were so many blind spots that were seen here and the way I see it is people don't come together by accident
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know there's um, they might not have the same tendencies operating, but those tendencies fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. And so there was a waking up from certain blind spots that I was really willing to explore that didn't seem to be, um, you know, a receptiveness to that exploration. And I was I was given an opportunity to express that, and that wasn't met with any openness either. And so because there appeared to be other agendas operating there and you know everybody's fine everybody's doing what they need to be doing and but what was actually recognized here was also for so long there was this need for an apparent other for completeness and so now it's really recognized that that has been let go of actually Mm -hmm. and anything that comes along, life will decide. The life that I am will decide that. And it potentially is the icing on the cake. I don't need it for anything. I'm already full in my completeness. Every relationship is an expression with the one, the one life. And so that's it. And there's w- just wasn't a- that
0: the case even during the, your last relationship? That there, it was based, I mean, that there was a completeness and a fullness? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that was post-awakening. So somehow the, the awakening hadn't ripened into a, a maturity where, you know, there was no sense of need.
1: Not at that point, actually, no, if I'm being completely honest. You know, uh-huh. there was a lot of... Um, Because there'd been so much struggle and so much suffering, I think, throughout the life of this particular expression, um, there was all sorts of things that had to um, unravel. And if we haven't particularly suffered in our life, we we haven't got the capacity to be be able to really understand that um, and to be able to meet that. Um, And often... You know, there can be differences, of course, in experience, different levels of maturity, we could say, different levels of... um, capacity to really go into this, there can be sometimes um, transcendence operating, what I call hanging out in emptiness and Mm -hmm. avoiding the human side of our experience because Mm -hmm. it gets so messy, and not wanting to meet certain things about ourselves. And so, you know, um, I I think I can be quite a challenging partner because I am wanting to, not necessarily as a vendetta, but to explore. And right. sometimes we want we want a safe option. Mm-hmm. We don't want somebody who challenges us too much. So.
0: Yeah. No, you've brought out a lot of good points there, and even the sort of the age and maturity point was is germane to this this particular discussion. You know, because I mean, just. Regardless of the the dimension of awakening, as, as a functioning entity, you know we have certain life experience, certain maturity, certain you know wisdom that uh, accumulates regardless of awakening with with age, you know, with life experience, and there might be a disparity there between two people who have you know undergone an awakening. Um, totally, it, totally. Yeah. I
1: mean, I mean here there was. You know, parents weren't married when I was born, then divorced by the time I was five. Um, Step parent, abuse, um, children from other relationships in terms of my, my parents, you know, both having children in other, in other partnerships, um, you know, in terms of my own career. Um, witnessing death and dying from the age of 16, um, working in intensive care, so dealing with a lot of uh, trauma and um, people going to work and actually walking into someone's personal crisis every single day and I did that for the best part of 15, 16 years and so you know, not everybody has exposure to those sorts of things, and um, dealing with buying property and all the things that go along with what most people deal with on a regular basis. I crammed a lot into my 38 <laughs> years so far, so. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, now that, and there's something to be said for that. I mean, it's obviously, well, as you were saying earlier, challenging experiences can be a great blessing, um, and we we do grow in wisdom through them. It's not that they're just sort of a drag and, you know, uh, stressful aspect of life that we would rather have done without.
1: No, oh, and it's been amazing to reflect in terms of what you were saying, the tendencies mm-hmm. um, on the types of partners that I attracted um, mm-hmm. over the over the years. Not that there's been that many, my <laughs> Um, But, um, you know, there's been big gaps in between and uh, because there was no kind of, Um, one of the tendencies could be avoidance of relationships because there's been such a lot of pain there in terms of my personal history as a child. And then we tend to choose partners who bring out those most painful dynamics, actually, to do with childhood abandonment, maybe mistrust, abuse, and all sorts of, of issues. Actually, that's what relationships do. We tend to pick those that do bring up all those things in Mm -hmm. the dynamic. And so relationship can be a very powerful opportunity to heal those misperceptions. And even if the other person isn't open to that, there's the self-reflection and the seeing through Mm -hmm. of um, certain relationship choices. And it's been interesting because there's been opportunity here, but the sorts of... um, opportunities that I may have taken before are not an option anymore. Mm. So, it's like been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and there's nothing in it. There's nothing in any experience, actually. And so, stepping into the familiar is not an option now, Mm. actually, not at all.
0: The bar has been raised. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, there's no need for it, and if yeah. it comes, it, it's gonna it's gonna enhance. It's not necess- I mean, I don't mean kind. It's gonna it's gonna be something that's gonna get better. I don't mean it like that. But often, what we think is a recipe for happiness often turns out to be a recipe for suffering.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, since we're on this whole topic of relationships, it's so obvious. Looking at even celebrities in the news all the time, that you know, so many people. <laughs> Uh, chase after relationships, expecting them to, you know, com- to pr- provide completion or fulfillment, um, and it's, um, you know, it's. They're just barking up the wrong tree. It, it doesn't. Um, I mean, obviously, We're looking
1: for love in the wrong place when yeah, it's like, like when the it's the song here. Says. Yeah, 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 totally. So, really, it's always an invitation to see what is true and to recognize what is true and it isn't found in experience Mm -hmm. it isn't found in a specific thing that is going to complete us and we we get burned until we see that
0: yeah well you used the term icing on the cake a little while ago i mean the cake in this case would be having become grounded in the, in we could say inner fulfillment you know a, a foundation of fulfillment that's um, not dependent upon changing circumstances and then with that foundation then you know would, th- like you, like you've just expressed it sort of doesn't matter whether the, a relationship manifests or not but if it does it's going to be for completely different reasons than, than it would have been if there was emptiness inside and, and that a lack of fulfillment.
1: Right, and, um, and who knows? I, I've no idea what life will bring, but whatever life brings is absolutely fine. You know, the, there's nothing more. There's nothing more than this. There's nothing more than the life that you are. And so just enjoy, you know, <laughs> because even, even vomiting can be fun. I can vouch for that now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, you said, you mentioned uh, that you were a medium, like a psychic, for five years prior to the waking experience. and You hadn't mentioned that in the first interview. Um, uh, it didn't come wh- up, did it? What was that all about?
1: Ever since I was a child, I had a lot of psychic and mysterious experiences, actually, and um, there was some kind of leaning towards it in the family, and I remember when I was 11 years old, um, my great-grandmother died, and I know that a lot of people perhaps wouldn't know their great-grandmother, but I did, and... um, she was a wonderful woman, and I uh, was very close to my mum's mum, and it was actually my mum's my nan, my mum's grandmother. Uh-huh. And um, so there was a real closeness with my, my nan and my great-nan, as I called her. And when she died at the age of 11, my nan was very distraught, and um, there seemed to be really an interest in, not that she said she went to kind of mediums or anything like that but we talked loosely about some experiences that had happened and i could relate to it um things that i felt and not that i'd ever experienced kind of hearing anything or seeing anything but there was just this sense of well there's got to be more to life than this and um my when my nan died um in 2000, my granddad, her husband, experienced all sorts of phenomena. He said he'd heard her voice and different things. And I'd sensed presence in my property, my first property, and um, I'd had. I can't even think of what they were now but certain psychic and mysterious experiences that was leading me to investigate and I think at the age of 16 i I'd read certain books on life after death and and that kind of thing. But really what what sort of clinched it was when he passed when my maternal uh, grandfather passed in 2003 and within days I heard his voice, I could start, I started seeing auras actually and um, there was then a real interest in psychic phenomena and development, and so I contacted my local spiritualist church, and that kind of started the ball rolling, really. Because while I was seeing things, I remember being on the intensive care unit on a night shift and watching my colleagues walk around the, the intensive care unit, and I could see their auras. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I was just absolutely fascinated with this, and. Um, I've always been very practically minded and had my feet pretty firmly on the ground and so I was kind of thinking, wow, you know, this is amazing. Were and the lights
0: were the lights kind of dim in intensive care? Did that make yeah, it easier to see yours?
1: At, at, at night they were because yeah, obviously yeah. yeah. And so it was like a dimly lit environment. You could still mm. see the monitors obviously and everything, the ventilators. Right. But I was it was like I don't know whether you've ever we've got a cereal in the UK called Ready Bread. Have you what heard of called? Ready Breck? No. Ready Breck. Uh, some kind of oat thing. Anyway, there was an advert for Ready Breck and it was like this glow around a person, uh-huh. the cartoon character with this glow around, and it was like that. It was like seeing that, mm-hmm. um, maybe two inches away from the physical form, there was this clear yet well defined. Um, outline that I could see, and then I started a few weeks later I started seeing colors as well mm-hmm. um, and feeling energies and hearing voices and having all sorts of experiences which probably too long to go into in this interview but um, I, I had what I, <laughs> I had what I felt was actually overwhelming physical evidence that there was an alternative reality, and um, messages from my grandfather, and seeing things. um, When when
0: people died in intensive care, would you see their souls leave their bodies, or anything like that?
1: The interesting thing was, after that experience, I never witnessed, um, I never witnessed, hang on, no, I didn't actually... I would never see a soul leave a body like that. I can't remember being around a death after that, actually. Mm. Oh,
0: uh, j- just coincidentally, it didn't happen after you started seeing the auras. Nobody. I hit.
1: can't, re- I can't yeah. recall, actually, um, mm. a time when I was, or it was daylight and, you know, there's a different kind of... Yeah, um, a little harder to see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I remember being with a patient, actually, and... Um, This was pretty unusual to have a patient who was able to kind of walk around on intensive care, but there was no bed for her on the ward. And I remember taking her to the visitor's room for a shower. And suddenly she started talking to me about this experience she had of watching her mother's death. Mm -hmm. And she said that her mother was sitting in the chair and um, when her mother died, she saw this light leave the body and go through the ceiling and she looked at her mother and she said it was like a a snake shedding its skin and she felt like you can just get rid of that now because my mother's gone and I could really relate to the energy the way she described the light was what I was seeing in terms of the auric field and so this was really fascinating but um, yeah I mean this whole discarnate, there seemed to be irrefutable proof to me at that time that there was an alternate realm in which, you know, people went when they died. And um, I I remember being away one weekend on um, some kind of mediumship retreat, and um, it was only about six months after I'd been kind of actively pursuing this. And my mentor, who'd been a medium for like 20 or 30 years, was there. And I remember saying to her, well, one evening they were having groups. And what group should I go into? And she was like, oh, you should go into the trance group. And I was like, okay. And she she was doing something else. So I remember sitting in this room uh, full of maybe 16, 20 other people. And I was quite close to the to the medium who was demonstrating at the front and it was pretty dimly lit but I was close enough to be able to have a good view and she was saying we're going to do some trance work is everybody okay with that and people were nodding and I hadn't got a clue what
0: this was
1: was. (laughs) and um she also said we're going to do some transfiguration is everybody okay with that and people were kind of raising their eyebrows and looking at each other and and they said yes and of course I didn't know what that was either but um you know it's it sounds totally freaky, crazy to say this, but I watched um, her face change twice, I watched it change into a Japanese man, and I watched it change into a woman, and she spoke in a different voice on both occasions and I was close enough to see that you know there was no way it could be faked. It was like a smoke came over her like a mist came over her face, and it transformed it. And if I hadn't seen that with my own eyes, I would think it was totally crazy. Mm. You know, so consciousness, as I now know, can mold itself to anything and will mold itself to whatever beliefs are operating mm. to kind of create this reality bubble. That's how I now view what was going on. But, um, yeah, it was, it was a pretty incredible time. And actually, at the, when the awakening appeared to happen, Because I thought I'd discovered all my deceased relatives again, the ones that I was very, very close to, particularly my nan, my grandfather, and my great-nan, it was like a personal crisis, actually. It was like losing everything, even though I knew everything was fine because everything is complete in its fullness. In terms of the personal, it was like being abandoned, actually, and knowing that oh. really there is nobody there, there's nobody here, including me. I'm not here either.
0: <laughs> so you're saying so, that when the awakening happened, um, all this psychic stuff went away. Is that what you're saying? You stopped it, seeing auras. You stopped hearing voices. No, all that. No, no,
1: not necessarily. You know, I. I still happens now, I still see auras and and Uh things like that, but there's not the focus of the attention, and it isn't experienced in the same way as such, because it's seen to be experienced now, it's not Mm -hmm. given a meaning as an alternative reality, Uh it's simply experiencing, and life experiences itself in every conceivable way possible.
0: Right. So, so it, it lost the sort of gravity that it had, the significance, the meaningfulness. It 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 became more of a um, just a uh, what's the word, miasma or phant- you know phantasmagoria. It 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 it, it lost its fo- its center point in in your in your sort of orientation your 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 sense of priorities is that what you're saying
1: right right and and you know s- s- weird things we could define them as weird or just experience things have happened since the awakening you know i've seen oh, i don't often s- speak about this and here I am talking about it You talk it on, about all kinds interview. of things. You, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I saw Ramana moving um, in a picture in the silent meditation room in the ashram two years running I've seen him moving. Not this year I didn't actually go in there this year but um Yeah, and that could have been turned into all sorts of things. You know, aren't I special? There's a story around my connection with Ramana, all of that. And it was just a nice experience. That's how it is now. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I have many, many visions of Ramana. I haven't really spoken about it in an interview, but um, I don't actually have a teacher as such. But after the awakening, I was on a meditation course, And somebody gave me a book with his face on the cover, and and there was just this heart connection, this opening. I can't explain that. And that started me going to Tiruvannamalai, and I've been going there every year since then. But there's no sense of specialness about it. There's just this sense of, well, this is it. This is how it is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes um, in modern spirituality, the notion of awakening or enlightenment or whatever terminology we're comfortable with is, um, it's dumbed down a bit. Um, And if you actually read the the Vedic literature, or the autobiography of a yogi for that matter, I mean, um, there's all kinds of wild stuff that, you know, enlightened people or I I hesitate to use that word because some people are uncomfortable (laughs) with it but you know what I'm trying to say Uh, there's all kinds of wild stuff that has gone on throughout history I mean take Jesus as an example look at some of the stuff he did so
1: apparently did I don't know yeah reported they did or
0: you know if you listen to Tim Freake he didn't even exist but um, (laughs) but
1: where is he now you know
0: yeah well he could be. I mean, he could be. I mean, I've I've interviewed half a dozen people who say Ramana came to them before they even knew who Ramana was, and before they'd even seen his picture or heard of him or thought about this kind of stuff. He, he appeared. Pamela Wilson said he he appeared sitting on her bed, yeah. you know, in the middle of the middle uh, of night. She, she yeah. threw a pillow at him. Um, and uh, oh. so, <laughs> so it could very it could very well be that you know a, a highly enlightened being like that. Hangs around and and does stuff after the body drops. I, I I'm just suggesting that um, it's a field of life is a, a vast field of all possibilities and and mysterious wonderful things and um, and you know it's not necessarily. Um, the complete story to boil it down into a, a simple plain vanilla you know there's this is all there is and there's nothing more kind of perspective um it's good to keep an open mind mm,
1: well it is whatever it is that's how i see it yeah
0: whatever and a lot of this stuff can become a distraction too i mean if, if if that's where the focus ends up primarily it can become you can get lost in all kinds of
1: Well, that's the interesting thing about mediumship, because I was lost in it for for five years. I did believe at that time that there is this separate reality. There's the physical realm and there's the discarnate realm and there is somewhere we go to when we die. And actually, you know, people have said to me, would you continue to do your work as a medium? Doesn't it help people? And actually, it doesn't help people at all. It continues the... The belief in separation, it actually prolongs that um, idea, and so it isn't actually helpful. You know, all there is is experiencing, and whatever form that experiencing takes, and it's interpreted according to how it's interpreted until it's not anymore.
0: Well, that leads to that article that I tried to get you to read, Um, (laughs) which, which is that, you know, the point of the article was that um, it's not that, only, well, the article sketched you know, sort of three levels of reality, uh, one being the sort of conventional level at which you know, there's right and wrong and good and bad and fast and slow and hot and cold and suffering and non-suffering and people starving and people rich and people poor and all the, the usual stuff that we see as life. And then there's a subtler level, which we could say the divine level, at which everything is just divinely orchestrated and perfect, exactly as it is. No need to change anything. And then there's a level at which uh, there's nothing existing. Nothing ever happened. The whole, you know, apparent world is nothing but a dream. And the point of the article was that, you know, maybe those top first first two levels are ultimately not so real as the as the the, the more fundamental one. But we can't utterly um, dismiss them as unreal either. Um, you know, the quantum physicist can't say Newtonian physics is nonsense because at the, at the quantum mechanical level uh, there's nothing happening and therefore I can just step off the edge of this building and it's not going to influence me. He'll, he'll splat on the sidewalk. So um, rather than take a... Uh, so all, there may very well be a place I, I in fact, I very well suspect there is a place where people go after they die. Is that ultimately real? no you know there are, because ultimately it 's all just oneness, but on a relative level it 's as real as you know the fact that you 've got a heart beating in your chest uh, you know, or a brain in your skull
1: you know what it, what feels true is you know when the relative and the absolute collapse into one another, and there is just this. You know, we can talk about it in relative and absolute terms, and they serve a point to break apparent identification with form, and that's it. You know, Ramana said, the world is illusion, only Brahman is real. The world is Brahman. Mm -hmm. And so really this completes the non-dual understanding all there is is this you know where is the illusion when we don't think about it actually there is no illusion there's only this there's only life as it is as it's happening it's not happening to anybody they're simply experiencing happening and this physical form is experience you know we could label anything in terms of a conceptual idea about what it is, what we've learnt it to mean, but actually when it boils down to it, all there is, is the intimacy of knowing experience. And, you know, we could use the word awareness to describe the knowing, and we could use the word experience to describe that which is known. But ultimately, they're not two things. There isn't this knowingness and this experience, because... When we really investigate, when we really look, there is there is not two things. Awareness and experience are actually the same thingless thing. Mm-hmm. That there is just simply this and you know we can place all sorts of conceptual frameworks in an attempt to understand and that is generally what the thinking mind does it's always trying to translate and understand what is happening when really this is beyond our comprehension this is beyond being able to understand it but it's kind of fun to have a conversation and see whether we can actually get somewhere with it but of course we can't get anywhere with it because all there is is this and There appears to be all manner of experiences which can be given the interpretation of levels. But in truth, that's just a thought. That's just an interpretation. That's just trying to put into a framework something that's, you know, when we actually stop and recognize, blows all frameworks to smithereens.
0: It does, but it doesn't... At the same time, it doesn't, the, and the word Brahman, and actually that that three part uh, saying was coined by Shankara and is often attributed to Ramana. But the word Brahman means totality uh, or great. It's from a Sanskrit word meaning great, and what it's understood to mean in in that context is that it's not just the absolute, but it's it's a it's a What is that word? Synergistic or symbiotic? Uh, it's It's something that's more than the sum of its parts. It's the absolute and the relative, and yet more than both. It contains the totality, and the totality includes the relative and you know even though the relative can be in the same breath dismissed and d- reduced down to the absolute you know you can take this cup and you know take it down through the molecular and atomic and subatomic levels down to the quantum mechanical and there is no cup there's no manifest thing here um, at the same time there's a cup you know which uh, is very can be understood you know chemically and through all sorts of you know laws of nature gravity and and so on and and yet again in the same breath you can go right back down to there is no gravity, the, the gravitational field collapses into the unified field and there's no, there are no laws of nature, there is no manifest universe. So you can almost swing back and forth with infinite frequency between these perspectives. We
1: can when we're trying to understand it, but when we're not trying to understand it, there's simply what is here, there's simply this, there's simply you know, just experience and the intimacy of knowing.
0: But without a brain in your head, there is no experience or intimacy of knowing. I mean, there's oh, a relative well, mechanism. If you what? had a severe stroke, there would be no experience or intimacy of knowing.
1: How do we know that?
0: Well, we you, were, you, were a critical, you were a critical care nurse. I mean, all how much? I,
1: all I know is my own experience. All I know that when there's no thought, there is a knowing of that. Mm-hmm. And so it's not dependent upon any phenomena that may appear or disappear, because it's the knowing, it's the intimacy of knowing that actually knows nothingness. We could say nothingness is an experience. Without the knowing of nothingness, that isn't even possible.
0: And so what knows nothingness?
1: I don't know. But something. (laughs) There is something that isn't a thing that has the capacity to know.
0: To know itself.
1: To know itself intimately, and it is knowing itself in every moment. This marvelous display of experiencing is a celebration and, of that, is confirmation of that.
0: And how does it know itself? You see, you, you don't know. The, through what instrumentality does it know itself?
1: It just knows itself. You know, there is. The know the knowing, the knowing, the intimacy, and the experience. And can we separate the two when we're using descriptions like that? Knowing and experience. Can we separate them? Or are they actually one and the same? There is just simply the intimacy of knowing, with, say- which is its own confirmation.
0: I would say that they are simultaneously and paradoxically two and one, or even three in one, you could say, because there's the knower, there's the known, and there's the objects or there's the there's the mechanics of knowing, and yet at the very same time, those three collapse into just oneness, where there, there, where it, there if, is no three.:
1: What if there isn't even oneness?
0: Then what is there?:
1: I don't know. there's just people not knowing. <laughs> What well, if even the concept of one is simply an interpretation? What if we can just let go of all of that? Mm-hmm. Does the existence disappear if we let go of the idea of that?
0: Is that a trick question? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, does, it?
1: does it? Does it? Is it dependent upon any interpretation, any belief to be itself?
0: No. I would have to say no. Um, but at the same time, if we're going to talk about it, you know, if we're going to actually function in the world uh, in some way, then there's naturally a relative structure of understanding and words and concepts and so on that we use to conduct an interview or to catch or a bus. What, or,
1: is it what's happening? And it isn't needing a framework as such, it's simply what is happening.
0: Yeah, but what does that mean exactly? What, I don't what is know. that? <laughs> well, no, you said it, though. But so you <laughs> must have a, you must imbue it with a meaning if you said it.
1: What if there is no meaning? What if there is just simply what is happening—the the the simple intimacy of knowing, experiencing, and the knowing and experiencing are not to. We could use the word awareness. We could use the word experience.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Can we separate awareness and experience, or are they actually the same thingless thing?
0: I would say they can be separated, but ultimately they're actually the same thingless thing, you know. And and I think the whole point I started out on here was just that um, we can't necessarily uh, we can't apply the level of you know one level of life to another necessarily. We can't extrapolate from the ultimate uh, reality that it's. All oneness, one thingless thing, as you just put it, and then necess- and then draw conclusions from that to say that well there you know there's no karma or there's no soul or there's no place you go when you die or anything like that. There may very well be all those things. The fact that all those things are only
1: set- in thought, only in thought, because there's only only this.
0: Then in thought, there's also only cats in thought and trees in thought and, mm. and stars and and galaxies in thought.
1: Yeah. There, that's right. There is simply what is happening and it's interpreted according to whatever concepts are being applied, but that is also what is happening. That is also experiencing. That is also simply life as it is here and now. You know, we try, it, it gets very, very simple when we boil it down to this. Mm-hmm. You know, we can apply all sorts of conceptualized frameworks to try and make sense of something which simply is beyond understanding. There's no way to understand this. There's no way to try and, it's like trying to pin the donkey's tail on an invisible donkey. You know, we're never (laughs) going to be able to do it. So what this is about and what I've noticed here is just there is a sinking ever more deeply into that and then there is a moving a natural moving which is happening anyway that isn't based in any conceptual framework it's it's moment specific and actually there's a deconstruction more and more of all the ideas that seem to be limiting how experience is experienced and then there is this freedom which just experiential freedom which just opens up more and more more and more, there's no end to the capacity to open up to what is already open, actually, infinitely open, and yeah, it just gets better and better.
0: Yeah, no, uh, no argument with that. Um, but something you just said made it sound as though, uh, you know, the. External world, the so-called external world, and the, the the laws of nature that we see functioning in it are subservient to our our subjective perspective. You know, like you say, okay, well, the, there are no galaxies or stars or birds or whatever except as thoughts. Uh, but obviously, you know, before there was anyone to think a thought, or maybe not. Obviously, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, you know, there there was a, a universe that it was evolving and expanding according to certain principles, and there was helium becoming more diverse in terms of it you know other chemical compounds, and so on and so forth, to the point where evolved life forms came about, which could begin to talk about all this stuff. So it's it's like our little teeny weeny uh you know, individual. F- structures with their limited capacity to understand and to conceptualize and all, do not necessarily call the shots as far as how you know, how the universe functions. It's it's the other way around.
1: Well it's simply experiencing however we label what is here, that's it. Mm-hmm. They're simply experiencing happening and a knowing of the experiencing, which actually aren't two things at all. They collapse into one another. We could say like the relative and the absolute descriptions just collapse completely. Mm-hmm. And there's just simply this. There's not even oneness or twoness. There's, there's simply what is happening beyond all labels, beyond all descriptions, beyond any capacity beyond any need to actually understand and there can be complete relaxation into that to the point that there is no nothing else
0: yeah okay good <laughs> N- enough of that so, uh, <laughs> um, one of the things you said in your notes uh, that we you know considering uh, talking about in this interview was that um you gravitate towards the more traditional approach rather than uh, the so-called neo Advaita. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, what I've what I've realized is that there is this integration which is necessary. You know, apparently necessary, despite what, all I've just said. But what I mean by that is a deconstruction of our ideas, so mm-hmm. we can we can apply frameworks like you know the conversation just seemed to be. Um, manifesting in terms of talking about frameworks, but really the way I see this deconstruction is a letting go of those frameworks more and more, letting go of the need to understand more and more, and so it isn't to say, to take the mental viewpoint that there's nobody here, there's nobody doing anything because really the way I see that that's just a personality pretending to be nobody, which doesn't actually serve any apparent purpose (laughs) other than you know, um pretend there's nobody here and often there can be all sorts of dysfunctional tendencies that are operating there. Reminds but, me of a joke. Um, I think
0: we need a joke. Oh, so... So are getting
1: a bit heavy for you, Rick. <laughs> no, it's just a time for a
0: joke. Ju- so the <laughs> rabbi and the cantor are in the church, and the rabbi is saying, "Oh, I, I'm the synagogue, I guess, the rabbi is saying, oh, I am nothing, I am nothing, I am nothing. And the cantor hears him saying that, and he starts getting into it, you know, oh, I am nothing, I am nothing. And then the, the janitor who's sweeping the floor hears those two guys saying that, and he begins to say, I sweep the floor and say, I am nothing, I am nothing. And so the rabbi says to the cantor, ha, look who thinks he's nothing laughter <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that, it's dangerous to interrupt you because you're not going to remember what you were saying. But <laughs> learning, <you're> learning. <laughs>
1: what was I saying? I don't know.
0: Um, <laughs> w- we were sort of getting into the uh, you know, traditional approach as, as compared with the so-called Neo-Advaita, and you were beginning to talk about how it's one thing to say you're nothing, which reminded me of the joke, but then there's the practical yada yada you were starting to say. So please continue. Yeah,
1: so it's really about sinking ever more deeply into into not knowing, actually, mm-hmm. into just pure being. And we can't learn how to be this. So it doesn't matter how many books we read or how many teachers we go to or how much, we try and investigate this in terms of intellectual understanding. Really what this is about is sinking ever more deeply into the life that we are and letting all of our needs and wants to understand things go.
0: Mm-hmm. And Zen they have what they call don't know mind, you know. And uh, which is exactly what you're saying. And so, how would that pertain to the you know traditional versus neo Advaita uh, issue?
1: Well, I my understanding of neo Advaita is that there is just you know this kind of absolute standpoint almost that's taken, and that there's nobody here, and there's nobody doing anything. Which, of course is we could say absolutely true but in terms of the experiential human integration um, doesn't really uh, address many of the dysfunctional patterns that are actually causing suffering so you could have someone who's taking this standpoint and actually still suffering quite a lot in their experience of life and so what we get to learn is actually how we lie to ourselves more and more about that and that isn't sustainable Uh, you know, it might be sustainable for a while but it isn't sustainable indefinitely and so if there's an authentic willingness, that can be let go of, that can be seen as simply an idea and there can be an embracing more and more fully of the life that you are and a willingness to see through all the ways in which experiencing is attempted to be manipulated for the idea of self. Mm. And reactions can be let go of more and more fully until there is um, a responding, a conscious responding rather than a reacting. And so responding becomes more and more conscious from the heart of being, we could say. We could describe it like that. So it's not coming from a conventional sense of right and wrong. It's moment-specific action that's inspired by being rooted in clarity.
0: And this reminds me of what I was getting argumentative about for the last fifteen minutes, which is that the, the you won't of, be
1: able to argue with me. You can try. I know, because you can always
0: just say it's a concept. But um, you know, but just that I love you you know, too
1: much to argue with you, Rick.
0: <laughs> Good, keep that in mind. Um, but the. Uh, you know, that the point that the absolute view doesn't negate the relative considerations, and I guess that's what you're saying that Neo-Advaita tends to do, is to glom on to an absolute view that, that, you know, there's no one here, no choice, nothing to do, no one to do it, and to neglect or ignore uh, relative stuff that really ought to be um, dealt with either through therapy or through whatever means.
1: Yeah, it's a way of avoiding, actually, the way I see it. It's like hanging out in emptiness and a way of avoiding dealing with all the things that actually have been causing problems mm. experientially in relationships, in life experience. And we can avoid this till the cows come home, but eventually it will actually have to be caught, caught up with and dealt with somehow. Mm. And life kind of ramps it up. That's the way I see. Life ramps up experience until it can't be avoided any longer. And if we think we're done, dusted, complete, often life is creating or manufacturing the exact experience that's required in order for all of those arrogant ideas to be seen through more and more fully. And... um, you know, there's there's a commitment here that anything that does not know itself to be love, you know, I want to see it, mm-hmm. and so there's been you know it's been pretty intense. I've, the fire's got pretty hot, I have to say, but um, you know, I I don't regret any of it. It's um, it's humbling, and it's totally awe inspiring, really, how specific it is, and there comes a point where every little thing is just instantaneous, every little kind of sensation or thought, it just is instantaneously seen, and um, there's no end to the depth of that seeing, and our self-deception, just our ability to self-deceive gets increasingly difficult.
0: Yeah. I'm taking a little online course with Adyashanti right now. I'm about halfway through it, one one lesson a week, and he's talking about um, seasons of of awakening and to using a metaphor of spring, summer, winter, uh, fall, winter. And you know, he's saying that the spring season is sort of like the initial awakening, where the absolute view is seen, and it's such a relief and such a kind of a, a liberation, and that one that a trap or a hang-up can be getting stuck in that, um, and then denying. Um, you know, this the relevancy, kind of the neo Advaita, uh, you know, buzzwords of that we've just talked about, denying the the sort of significance and relevancy of uh, working through relative things, and, you know, be, by dismissing them as non-existent. Um, so, anyway. And
1: saying they're self resolving, that's another one that I hear banded around quite a lot. They're self resolving. You know, you it's instantly. Are they going to work
0: themselves out without you well, having Well, they
1: just instantly disappear the moment they arise. They instantly disappear. Uh, they will keep reappearing. The same cycles of dysfunctional patterns will keep reappearing until they're addressed because we can't deceive ourselves indefinitely, we can't lie to ourselves. And so, whatever way experience is being manipulated in terms of our identifications, will have to be um, addressed at some point yeah. in the experience.
0: That that brings a larger point, which is that there's a. It seems that there's this evolutionary force in the universe which doesn't let us uh, rest on our laurels. You know, There there's always going to be a, an impetus to move along, even though we might you know get stuck from time to time Um, something's it's you know something's gonna hit us over the head with greater and greater frequency and force until we realize you know until we deal with the situation
1: yeah the way I see it it's like a deepening emptiness Mm -hmm. you know we we're chucking out things that we've held on to that actually don't serve us you know the way we learn to see and experience life is based on all sorts of things that we learn and we take to be true and so it's, it's like taking off dysfunctional pairs of glasses till we can really see much more clearly and in the light of pure seeing which of course doesn't enable anything to go unseen Ultimately.
0: Beautiful. Um, Somebody wrote in a question, which I read to you before we started this interview, and you thought, what? What did he (laughs) say? (laughs) But um, maybe we'll take a crack at it again, and uh, we can pick it apart sentence by sentence if necessary. Um, He said, I don't know if it was a he or she, but the person wrote, you and Karen mentioned a sort of uncertainty that has been discussed. Stop me if you're ready to, to respond to any of this. I wonder if this can become an obstacle or an unnecessary source of confusion for those who have experienced the fundamental awakening, yet do not comprehend the simplicity of it. In other words, I
1: don't understand the question. Go well, there, on. Well, there, there's if you an can another words it.
0: here. Maybe it'll. <laughs> so, in other words, their conditioned mind is experiencing a lingering doubt, even though the identity has shifted. Is this what you're talking about in that interchange? I think what the person is maybe saying is the, the word uncertainty has a negative connotation sometimes. You know, we don't we don't want to be uncertain; we want to be certain. And and this person is um, interpreting the word uncertainty as some sort of lingering doubt, whereas I think you use the word uncertainty, or at least I would use it, with a positive connotation, which is what you've been saying repeatedly about not knowing. Um, you know, we we tend to think of security as lying in being certain about things. Absolutely, I am absolutely sure. Therefore, I can sort of be you know, secure and tight in my in my certainty. But what you're saying is that we fall more and more and more and more into a not knowing state where everything is just sort of, um, you know, unfolding yes. deep in a, from a deep place, and we're not pulling the strings.
1: Yes, and in a way, I think I've used this phrase before. It's like complete certainty in, in uncertainty. Uh-huh. There's a complete relaxation into not knowing, into not being sure of anything. And, yeah. and that is clarity. And from that place of clarity moves right action.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there is, there is a letting go of the need to understand.
0: Yeah, I think and it was John... Jean- I think it might have been Jean Klein, maybe somebody else who said uh, the the bad news is that you 're in free fall forever. The good news is that there 's no ground <laughs> you 're not going to hit
1: right, and that 's how it is really it's mm-hmm. it, The map is getting rewritten all the time. How can we possibly know where this is going, how it 's going to unfold mm. simply a doing because this is what seems to need to be done here and now not for a goal not for any particular reason other than this is what seems to need to be done right now and that's how life is experienced here simply a moving with whatever or not moving with whatever seems to need to be required in that moment um, without any sense of, well, I'm doing it for this or I'm doing it for that. It's simply, well, this is what's unfolding.
0: Okay, great. Well, this has been a good discussion. Um, I think we've covered a lot of bases. Is, is there anything else you'd like to throw in there before we wrap it up? Just
1: that I'm available. if I'm doing one-to-one sessions. If people are interested in uh, getting in touch and uh, exploring with me, then I'm very open um to to that with people and uh, also i'm open to invitations both um locally in the uk and um maybe europe um i'm open to going a bit further afield but obviously you need to commit more time to doing that but um You know, some weekend retreats in in Europe um, is potential if people are interested in hosting me for that. Yeah, you're Um, going to Poland
0: next weekend, right? I
1: am going to Poland next weekend and uh, really looking forward to that. Some of the people that uh, are going to be there were in India, so it would be nice to catch up Mm. with them. And, um, yeah, just I'm really um, passionate about exploring with people that are keen to look. And so, yeah, this seems to be how life... Is uh, is unfolding here, and uh, I'm really enjoying it.
0: And your your website is Karen-Richards.com.
1: That's right. That's cool. right.
0: So I'll be linking to that from uh, com. and there's contact information for you there, and there the is donate button and all kinds of things here: testimonials and, and poems, and audio and video and whatnot.
1: Yeah, there's um, some free audios and videos there, and uh, yeah, just if you feel inspired to get in touch, if you resonate on some level with what, the way I'm expressing things, and you'd like to explore things more personally, then um, I'm open to doing some one-to-one sessions. So, um, yeah, it's been a, a delight. Again, thank you, Rick.
0: You're welcome. Let me make a couple of quick wrap-up points. Um, those who've been watching or listening have uh, been listening to an, uh, uh, an interview in an ongoing series. Um, a new one is recorded each week. We've been speaking with Karen Richards from the UK. And uh, next week I'll be speaking with Gina Lake, which I think will be a delight. I don't know if you know Gina, Karen, but she's, she's really neat. Um, and uh, if you would like to be notified every time a new interview is posted, you can either subscribe on YouTube or you can go to batgap.com and you can sign up for a little email notification thing there. I don't send out a lot of emails, but one goes out every time a new interview is posted. There's also uh, several discussion groups. There's one there on batgap.com, which gets quite lively around each interview. There's uh, one on YouTube. It's not as, as well set up uh, as that. And then there's also a, um, uh, a Yahoo group which uh, is quite lively and a little bit less known than the other two. So yeah, there's, link, there's a link to that on batgap.com. This is also available as a podcast for those who like to listen to just the audio while they're commuting or something. And uh, that just about covers it. There, I also have a donate button there, which you're free to click if you like. Um, and there's also a little page which explains why donations are solicited and what is done with the money. So thanks, Karen. Um, Hope thank you, Rick. S- hope to meet you one of these days in person.
1: I have a feeling it will happen at some point. We'll see.
0: Yeah, once we're world famous. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hopefully that will never happen. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just be ordinary about everything.
0: All right, so thank you, and thank everyone for listening or watching, and we'll see you next time.